Welcome to the second part of our double episode with myself, Emily, and co-host Jimmy, interviewing Dr. Bryce Stewart. In this second episode, we speak all things Seaspiracy and try to find some light at the end of the tunnel with some ocean optimism. Enjoy! We want to talk about that word that's on everyone's lips, which is Seaspiracy. So this is a Netflix documentary about overfishing around the world and many, many other things and other negative impacts on the marine environment. But it caused such a huge stir in the scientific community. And I know to myself, my Twitter just exploded when Seaspiracy came yeah, out. Yeah. So why do you think it, it caused such a stir coming from your marine science background? Why was it so emotive? Yeah, I'm probably one of the people who helped it cause a stir as well. <laughs> I did a bit of stirring, I guess. <laughs> I think all of us here, we love the ocean. We're fascinated by issues around it. Um, we're really passionate about seeing those, the problems sort of tackled. And so personally, when I found out there was this big film coming out on Netflix about overfishing, I was like, cool, bring it on. This is the sort of stuff I love. And then I started to watch it and I was like, oh no, like this is just going wrong from the first few minutes in. It was just these big exaggerations. And then one of the things that sort of annoyed me the most was the way that it, it attacked some of the NGOs that are doing really good work. They're just not the people you should be attacking over these issues. And it seemed to just have this agenda that everyone should stop eating fish and that things were catastrophic and that that was the only solution for the world. And if we weren't, then we were kind of evil if we tried to defend the fishing industry. I mean, I've never had so much abuse on Twitter, you know, so really? really horrible. I know people have had death threats over this, you know, people working for those NGOs and that shouldn't be going on. Okay, take the Marine Stewardship Council, you know, it's not perfect. Part of that is the way the system operates. Deliberately, they don't actually do the assessments themselves. They just provide the framework for the assessments and they're constantly trying to improve that to make sure that only the best fisheries get through. But sometimes things get through that you might think, oh, well, you know, I'm not sure about that. And there's lots of quality control checks and fisheries lose their certifications, including the one highlighted in the film. It lost its certification before the film came out. And then some of the other things like the NGO tackling plastic pollution, I think the plastic collective or cooperative, I can't remember what it was called, but, you know, them saying, oh, why aren't you talking about fishing gear and ghost fishing and all this well they all are like i used to work for the marine conservation society ghost fishing was a big deal to us but when you actually look at the global figures fishing waste litter makes up about 10 percent of what's in the ocean so that's huge you know that's a big problem it should be on people's agendas but 80 percent of the waste comes from the land so that's you and me you know that's <laughs> That's us. That's why we all have a responsibility to try and use less plastic and dispose of it responsibly. And yet they took this approach of like cherry picking that one study from the Great Pacific Garbage Patch and sort of making out that most of the waste in the ocean came from fishing. And it's just simply not true. 
what I would say on the defence of Seaspiracy, I mean, of course, I'm not an expert in it at all, but from what I could see was that a lot of people came out and they were like, it's outrageous that they're saying no one should eat fish. People survive on this. It's their livelihoods. Yeah. But I think what we've got to remember is Netflix is watched by a very small fraction of the global population. And Seaspiracy, I think, is mainly targeted at Western audiences who go to the supermarket, they buy their fish. In the modern day, a lot of people see a, a piece of meat on the shelf or a fish and they don't even think where it's come from. They just see it's come from the supermarket. They, they've lost the connection to it. Sure. And I, I personally think that the target audience of a documentary like that is people who don't consciously make the decisions about what they're eating they don't link it together and although it may have a lot of inaccuracies in it it's definitely sparked conversation and it's stirred conversation i know that there's been many fisheries scientists who have been trying to make documentaries for a while but not being able to get funding for it and things like that so maybe something like this it's sparked conversation and it might actually allow more accurate documentaries to come in the future from it would you agree with that partly (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So absolutely, I agree that it has raised the profile of the issues around overfishing. And that's a good thing. So people who've never even thought about this very much before are now thinking about it. They're engaged with the issue. They've either stopped eating fish or they're thinking more about what they eat. So that is good. I think, yes, I've heard that defense about, oh, it was only aimed at sort of high income Westerners who have Netflix subscriptions. But actually, Netflix is watched all over the world. You know, I know people in the Seychelles, in the Philippines, in Fiji who've watched this film, whose whole communities rely on fish. You know, they have often few other options. And so they actually find the film offensive, basically, you know, really, and racist. And I can understand why. And the film didn't kind of go, if you have a choice, maybe rethink eating fish which is what it should have done but it didn't go for any of those more subtle messages it just went it was all very black and white so that's kind of my problem it could have been more it should have been more nuanced and it wasn't the other thing i i really worry about and i think this is a genuine concern is because it had so many inaccuracies then opponents of the film yeah or the, of uh, people who want to sort of say there's really not a problem are able to just go well look that wasn't true. That that's misleading. That's exaggerated. You know, I've compared it to a witness in court who's maybe seen a murder, right? And they but they make some stuff up. And suddenly, even though the murder's happened, they've seen it, but they wanted to make sure this person gets convicted. So they've embellished the facts. If the jury finds that out, they go, Well, they're an unreliable witness. And they they basically get discounted. And for me, it's the same here. Maybe I would say that as a scientist, because, you know, we're sticklers for the facts and all the rest. But I I am really concerned about that. And I've, I've seen it happen. Lots of people from the industry commenting on Twitter just saying, oh, it's just vegan propaganda. We can just ignore the whole thing. And no, we can't actually. Like a, a lot of the stuff in it was real. And it's really concerning, like slavery at sea, you know, shark finning, some of the bycatch and the overfishing in general. These are big issues. So we, we shouldn't be sweeping them under the carpet. But yeah, it makes it a bit too easy. We will see whether or not it ends up having a net positive or negative effect on what happens next. Do you think 
to engage this many people, they had to make it that dramatic. Because if it was just science, facts and a documentary like that, I think a lot of people wouldn't be interested in it. And that's part of the issue. The public generally, they hear scientific jargon and they just they switch off from it. They don't take an interest. But when they see these horrific scenes and over-dramatised scenarios, it engages them. I feel like we need a new space for people to be able to openly engage with scientists. And obviously there's Twitter and that's great. But before I came to do my master's here, I didn't even know there was like a science Twitter, Mm. for example. It's a really good point. And you've got to strike the balance between being accurate and credible and making it interesting and exciting and engaging. And I do a lot of science communication and this is what I'm trying to do. Every interview is sort of achieve that balance. And it's not easy. You know, some people have real skills at doing it and we need to <laughs> we need to encourage them and support them. But I still think it went too far the other way. And one of the things I think what it could have done is show some of the more positive stories because people like to have a bit of hope. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that was completely lacking from that film. Definitely. You know, hit, hit them with the bad stuff. Absolutely. Get their attention. But then say, okay, this is what we can do to turn this around. And here's some examples of where it's actually worked. Now, the thing with that film is its message was very simple. It said sustainable fishing was impossible and we should stop eating fish. Did you feel attacked by that, Bryce, that they said sustainable fisheries didn't didn't exist? Did that, I, don't, did that hurt? I didn't feel personally attacked, but I just don't agree with it. It's like, of course, any type of food production system has an impact on the environment and fishing absolutely if you look at maximum sustainable yield which is the target of of many fisheries management schemes that means keeping the fish stock at about half of the level it used to be and that's going to mean it's sustainable that it's the yield as you guys probably know is about sort of the rate that it's producing new fish but that does mean there's there's roughly half the fish that there was originally before humans existed but then think of an environment that is unaffected by humans there's very very few almost none in the world probably with climate change there aren't any anymore you know i mean look at england it's covered in fields should we should we get rid of them all and plant forests but then what are we going to eat and what about all the people who lose their jobs and their traditions and all the rest? You know, people have even said to me, like, when you eat a loaf of bread, you don't think about the fact that harvesting that wheat killed thousands of insects and probably <laughs> some mice and other rodents and things like yeah. that. Everything we do has an impact. And so the idea is to try and minimize that impact while also, in this case, producing food, basically, and, and supporting livelihoods. And so my worry is, you know, if you did follow what the film said and, and everyone in the world stopped eating fish, then where's that food going to come from? It's going to come from the land. We're going to have to clear more land. What environmental impacts is that going to have? I would argue that fishing done well, sustainably, with you know, low amounts of bycatch, as minimal amounts of impacts on the wider environment is a really good choice. It has actually a relatively low carbon footprint and, it, and done well, it's sustainable as well, indefinitely. And I think when we have these fisheries, we have the economics behind it to do research into them and to know how they're changing. And, you know, it's not just fisheries now which are changing fish stocks. We have climate change as well. And if we don't have that economic importance of, you know, researching the fisheries, then we're not going to be able to conduct all these experiments and studies to see how they're changing. So I think we we do need to 
understand how we're affecting fisheries, but just monitor them. And so I think, yeah, the message for like to stop eating fish just didn't sit right with me, especially talking about the Brexit and the fishing communities earlier on. If we stopped eating the fish, how is that going to impact them? Do you think this Netflix documentary will change things for them? You know, it's it's really hard to say. I honestly think, although a lot of people have been outraged by it, ultimately it won't change very much. I've heard apparently 97% of households in England, somebody eats fish. So, you know, that's not going to change in a hurry, to be honest. Yeah. Maybe it'll go to 96.5. <laughs> These things sort of are high in the public consciousness for a few weeks and maybe a few months at most. But this is the other thing about the film is, although it, it did create the shock factor, the real way to improve fisheries management is to do the science and engage with the governments and the management authorities and with the fishing industry. These are the people who actually make things change. So you got to work on them. Getting the public outraged, maybe it helps a little bit, but it's not, it's not really going to change the world. Yeah, I think they also, something they really lacked in that film was, like you said, people across the world have watched it and they didn't actually go into any of these communities that rely on fish and talk to people there. No, it was very, it was very white male led in that film. I mean, at the end, they spoke to some people in the Faroe Islands about the pilot world grin. That also didn't really have anything to do with the film, apart from the fact that they know that pretty much 98% of human beings watching that are going to be emotionally very scarred by seeing that happen. Yeah, I mean, that was a really weird thing to put in the film. And I think they did it to try and say, oh, look, we, we, we balanced, you know, look, we showed the other side. We, but that was after us watching all those pilot whales be sort of killed and blood mm-hmm. everywhere. And I mean, that was shocking. I didn't want to see it that. Was, I'm, no. I'm no, I'm, that was horrific. You know, I, I'm no fan of that. I'd be, I'd be very happy if that never happens again. And so then to show us all of that and then to talk to this guy trying to defend it, I mean, yeah, you're right. No one's going to go, oh, actually, he makes a good point. Yeah. Like <laughs> that just would not have happened. So you're um, right. I mean, what about going to you know, a village in in the South Pacific somewhere or where fish is part of their culture going back thousands of years where it's like literally (laughs) their only source Mm. of protein and they fish using traditional methods and traditional management approaches that are actually quite sustainable. I mean, there's lots of examples out there. Do you think that's that's the future? Engaging with Indigenous communities who have had traditional fishing methods for generations and using those across the world or do you think they're hard to scale up yeah it's hard to scale up but what you can do one of the places i've done a lot of work for the last 10 years is on the isle of arran in scotland and there's a group there called coast the community of arran seabed trust and they've been very successful in campaigning for and and having implemented marine protected areas including the only no-take zone in scotland that sort of community-led initiative has a lot going for it. It doesn't have to happen in Indigenous communities in the South Pacific. It can happen in the UK, in America, in Canada, Australia, etc. I think coastal communities often are quite connected to the sea and they're concerned about what goes on in those areas, but they haven't always had a say in the past. And so the challenge is to try and bring together all the views and find a way forwards. And it's, it's difficult. 
But for me, it's it's absolutely the way we need to go. Rather than having these big top-down management systems that just literally tell people, right, this is what you can and can't do, like generate it from the bottom up much more. Now, Jimmy is an eternal pessimist, I think, for the oceans, aren't you, Jimmy? Absolutely not. I disagree <laughs> with that. I think I, I, I describe myself as a realist with a sprinkle of optimism on top. I believe that, I mean, I look around me at certain things happening, climate change, obviously overfishing, deforestation, things happening around the world. And I can't look at these things and personally think that everything's going to sort itself out. But I also do believe in generally humanity inherently is good and doesn't want to destroy the natural world mm. and that people can change. But I also, I don't know if I personally at this very minute could say that in 50 years time, I'm optimistic that we won't have half the cetacean species come extinct or we've overfished certain fish stocks that can't ever repopulate or things like that. And I think for the oceans, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily pessimistic, but I wouldn't say that I'm an optimist. So what can you say to me that is going to change my mind? Because I'm sure you can say some things. <laughs> you can. We need to end this on a positive note, Brian. Exactly. <laughs> Unlike Seaspiracy, let's, let's do what they should have done. Sure. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm, I get where you're, where you're coming from, but I sort of take a slightly different view. So absolutely, there are huge issues out there. We've talked about them. And I think overall, things will probably get worse before they get better. That's the sad reality. In any walk of life, people tend to only react when things get pretty grim. And so, you know, when we do start seeing more species go extinct, when we do start to see fish stocks collapsing and some of the other ecosystem effects spiraling out, like you see, for example, in the Baltic Sea, there's a possible connection between overfishing of cod and harmful algal blooms, for example. So you start seeing this snowball effect and then people really start to take notice when that sort of stuff goes on. Unfortunately, I think there will probably be more of that over the next 10 to 20 years. But at the same time, we are seeing the recovery of many fish stocks around the world and other species. I mean, look at off the, off the south coast where you guys are. You're seeing the bluefin coming back, for example. Mm-hmm. And, and humpback whales, you know, yeah. are now more abundant in the world's oceans than, than we've ever known about. When I was growing up in Australia, I mean, I didn't even know anyone who'd seen a humpback whale. Now you can go down the coast in Victoria, where I'm from, and you can see them from the beach. You know, like, um, so these the populations of a number of species, when they've been given protection or proper management, they do recover. And, you know, I've worked on a number of different um, marine protected areas around the world, and that's maybe one of the reasons why I'm so optimistic is the way that the marine environment can bounce back is quite extraordinary. Probably more like, more unlike any other ecosystem on earth, I think it has that capacity to really come back. Maybe it's partly because of, you know, it's the growth rates of certain species, but also the fact that you're dealing with open populations where they can be replenished from other areas and things like that. So yeah, I'm a real believer that the good management can work, that if we keep going in that direction we will reach the right balance but we can't relax we're learning more and more how to manage fisheries better and how to take account of the sort of wider ecosystem impacts of them 
for me, climate change is the one thing <laughs> that we're not moving fast enough on. Yeah. Um, even though at the moment you would probably say overfishing is the biggest threat to the ocean, we know how to tackle that. You know, that is like you just need to put proper management in place and proper enforcement, get people on board. That that can be turned around. Tackling climate change, we need the whole world to react to that. And, you know, it's not just ocean warming, it's acidification as well. And so those things, they worry me. <laughs> um, and we are going to have to adapt to some inevitable changes. But again, we're seeing some real action now. And I kind of feel like we're at a turning point at the moment. Even the current Tory party are starting to do some, some serious things, some, set some <laughs> serious targets, like, you know, phasing out diesel cars, bringing in electric, etc. cetera, um, more and more wind turbines. Like this stuff is making a difference. So I, I maintain hope. But I mean, I don't know about you, Jimmy, but I definitely feel optimistic now and very motivated to go out and make some changes. How do you feel? Yeah, more optimistic. And I mean, I can imagine that because you've worked in the industry for so long and you've actually been able to see the changes with your own eyes from what it was like from when you first started to what it's like now, that must also help. Absolutely, yeah. That you see things put in place. You can see the recovery. You can see what happens yourself when we give the ocean a chance. Yeah, you know, I've, I've seen that recovery firsthand, but I've also seen changing attitudes from both the public and the fishing industry. You know, the idea of sustainable seafood didn't even exist when I, when I was your age. You know, there was no certification schemes, or maybe just about, but anyway, it pretty much was not really on the mainstream. And whereas now, you know, you have lots of not only certification schemes out there sort of really making change happen, but you have completely different attitudes from the fishing industry. And they're really, they know now they need to sort of demonstrate their sustainable credentials. And, you know, a number of fishing organizations employ scientists and they're quite committed to providing data to scientific programs and working with scientists and all that sort of stuff. That's the way forward. I, I remember years ago when I was on the Isle of Man where I used to work, we were having a bit of trouble with illegal fishing in the marine protected area there. And then coincidentally, the university decided our research boat was too expensive and they sold it, which was a bit dramatic at oh the time. Goodness. So we were like, okay, we're going to have to charter fishing boats to get our research done, which is what we started to do. Well, it was the best thing that could have ever happened. And so Myself and colleagues, we started to work alongside the fishermen and really get to know each other. And even after a couple of days, I remember one of the skippers just saying to me, you know what, we actually just want the same thing, don't we? We want like a healthy ocean that can allow us to continue to do this sustainably, indefinitely into the future. And I was like, absolutely. That was the real turning point. Like you, you realize that it's in everyone's interest to have a healthier ocean and if we get everyone on the same page and working out what's the best way to achieve that learning from each other, then we will get there. Yeah. I feel, I feel optimistic. I'm happy with Excellent. that. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. I like that, that anecdote. It's <laughs> yeah. a good note to end on, I think. Definitely. All right. And good luck with the rest of your degrees. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And good luck with the rest of your degrees. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> well jimmy how was that yeah i really enjoyed that 
great speaking to Bryce. What a lovely guy. It was. Do you feel a little bit more optimistic now about our future of fishing and sustainable yeah, fisheries? Yeah, I think so. I hope other people do too. Um, I really like the quote and the anecdote he ended on about the Manx fisher both wanting the same thing. Because I think yeah. at the end of the day, people love the ocean. They love the animals that live there. And all people want is for it to thrive, whether that's for their livelihoods or just because they like the animals that live there and know how important it is to the function of our planet. That's it, exactly. Well, we both hope that you guys have really enjoyed listening to this podcast episode as much as we have enjoyed recording it with Bryce. If you would like to follow us on social media, please do so. Our Instagram handle is naturalselection underscore podcast and our Twitter is UOE podcast. And you can find the podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify or iTunes. And if you liked it, please give it a five star review. It will really help us out. And share it around with your friends or anyone you think might be interested in listening to this. And until next time, thanks for listening. Bye. Podcast.